Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are here. Please grab your stool. It's the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, very bad, and definitely crazy, and also disturbing uh, crazy martini today. But Jim, uh, as we get started here, we have to begin with something that I think is once again a reminder that the Three Martini Lunch is the perfect spot for all of us to congregate. We can safely social distance, and even the drinks are virtual. But I know a lot of folks are not going to like this news. Now, it comes to us from the World Health Organization, so take it with a grain of salt or a whole bucket of it. But it says uh, from USA Today, as the coronavirus pandemic leaves millions stuck at home, alcohol sales have risen drastically nationwide. The World Health Organization, however, says alcohol may put people at increased risk for the coronavirus, weakening the body's immune system and leaving drinkers at risk for other risky behaviors that could increase the likelihood of contracting the coronavirus. Jim, there is bad news, there's depressing news, and uh, this is pretty bleak for a lot of people. And then there's fake news. (laughs) You shut your mouth, Dr. Tedros. Your dirty, dirty mouth. I, look, my bourbon says it's really high proof, which means it's disinfecting my digestive system, right? Why do they say that this is distilled? It's preserved. It means it's cleaner. It means it's good. You know, back in the day, before they had probably you no know, modern plumbing, it was dangerous to drink the water because the water could have bacteria, not a little critter swimming in it. But beer and wine and other alcoholic beverages were safer because the process of brewing them and uh, distilling them made, you know, eliminated all of those, those things. So, I, I, look, we know the World Health Organization is uh, echoing Chinese propaganda about this virus. I'm really disappointed to see them echoing prohibitionist propaganda as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the World Health Organization, because as uh, we have documented, they've done a horrible job of uh, disseminating facts quickly. They've carried China's water. They said as recently as January, and not the beginning of January, but uh, within the first couple of weeks of January, that uh, coronavirus, at least this version of it, was not transmissible human to human. Uh, After Trump uh, did the travel ban from China, the World Health Organization saying that was not necessary. And so they've been behind the curve on this for a long time now. And so Dr. Burks was on The View And Megan McCain asked her, you know, what do you think about the World Health Organization? But she basically said in about as blunt terms as you'll ever get out of Dr. Burks, uh, a lot more transparency here would have been really good. And we didn't get it here. And that really changed the response. Here's what she said. When it first explodes, someone had to have known that there was human to human transmission. You know, I, I see how this has moved through the United States. And I can see how you can go from one or two cases to hundreds of cases in a high, high doubling rate, which we call, you know, the R0 and R0 values that people, some people predict could be four to six. That's not subtle. And so you really have to go back and ask yourself, why wasn't there this level of transparency when this virus exploded? I think people would have prepared differently if they had known the level of transmissibility of this virus. So, Jim, again, uh, Dr. Burke's pretty diplomatic. Uh, That's pretty much screaming from her. And so I don't know what that's going to do in terms of the larger debate over the WHO. But to have her say it so clearly is a good thing. Yeah. And it's one of those things where this is another example of how extraordinarily frustrating um, our tendency to reduce every debate to a matter of what do you think of Trump? 
has been really harmful because I'm looking at, uh, you know, Bill Gates created Microsoft and at one point the world's richest man, big time philanthropist. And so the other day he's, you know, he's, he, Trump makes this announcement, the U.S. is going to cut off funding and Bill Gates gets very upset about this. This is halting funding for the World Health Organization during a world health crisis is as dangerous as it sounds. Their work is slowing the spread of COVID-19. And if that work is stopped, no other organization to replace them. The world needs who now more than ever, right? And in fact, not only that, he made a, a couple of, another donation, another 150 million uh, towards fighting the coronavirus pandemic. Bill Gates clearly wants to stop the coronavirus. That's great. I would like he and everybody else who's suddenly rushing to defend the World Health Organization to, at the very least, let's confront what who did during this crisis. You could say that the primary you know, uh, uh, person to blame for this is the Chinese government for lying so consistently. Who is a, an accomplice? Who is someone who was either a willing or unwilling accomplice to these lies? Uh, I think the fact that they ignored Taiwan is much tougher. And by the way, I think it's worth noting that uh, Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu, not one of the favorites of the Three Martini Lunch or many conservatives <laughs> or Republicans, also called out Dr. Tedros for ignoring the warnings from Taiwan. This really should be something separate from Trump. We, we really do need a reckoning of the World Health Organization. After, now, you could argue whether we should do this reckoning right now. You could argue whether we should do this reckoning at some point in the future when we do not have our hands full with this uh, uh, you know, public health crisis. But I would point out this public health crisis isn't going away next week or next month or you know, arguably for a year. We're, we're just really not sure how long it's gonna to take to get develop a vaccine and or to lessen the risk of public spread of this. So we're gonna to have to deal with this at some point. And if the World Health Organization cannot be trusted for accurate information about a global pandemic, it's kind of fair to ask, what is it really good here? I, I jokingly am using that, uh, the, the line from uh, Office Space. What is it you say you do here, Tedros, if you're not <laughs> actually good at communicating information about a virus? Um, and then people get into the, well, how could the World Health Organization know? Well, the first thing is, is was China giving the World Health Organization all of the access that they wanted? Right. If, if there, God forbid, there's some sort of outbreak tomorrow somewhere in the United States, nobody in the United States is going to say, no, you can't go there. Other than maybe, you know, a handful of military installations or Fort Meade where the NSA is or Langley where the CIA, you know, by and large, if you want access to something, access to patients, the United States of America is going to give it to you. Um, that was not the case here in China. And we know this is now defined, this is now proven beyond any reasonable doubt that China's government, both at the local level in Wuhan and at the national level in Beijing, was not telling the world the truth about this, right? Uh, now, because places like Taiwan and Hong Kong and Japan and South Korea and these other places had much more experience with SARS, which, oh, by the way, also started in China, that all of these countries' governments were much more like, eh, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I believe you, China. I, I, I we're going to start taking preparations because we remember last time this happened, you didn't play straight with us. And our whole response to that viral outbreak was hindered by the fact that you were lying to us. So we're just going to assume this is worse than it was. And by the way, I think it's a reasonable argument that the United States government should have been uh, a little more skeptical of the claims of China from early on. Um, but that having been said, you know, all of this, this general broad-based defense of who right now is basically, an, whether they like it or not, it is a de facto argument against accountability. 
Uh, I, I'm really not sure that Dr. Tedros, you know, first of all, not only does he not have any credibility anymore, is he really so irreplaceable? Is there really nobody else in the entire organization who could, you know, uh, do some good to and would be a, a better person to have as the face and voice of the organization? And if they're doing it, do they really need to do the events with Lady Gaga? Do they really need to do the <laughs> web chats with Pri Priyanka Chopra? I mean, I would love to have a web chat with her. I don't begrudge Tedros for wanting that, but he's got other, you figure he'd have other stuff on his schedule these days. Um, so I appreciate Dr. Burke saying this. I think it points out this is not some sort of crazy ultra-nationalist Trump idea. Uh, we can argue the specifics about the funding, but I think any honest discussion of this stems from the fact that it's not just that who made a mistake, who made an enormously consequential mistake on its core mission, raising the question of what the organization is there for if it can't do this. They need to change the name of the organization because when you say things like who made a mistake and who needs to change this, it's like an Abbott and Costello routine and it gets uh, a tad confusing. Jim, I, I know folks are going to be outraged at your uh, praise of Bill Gates. Don't you know that uh, he's all into the vaccine because he wants to microchip us all? My whole problem is I know he likes to have the little happy talking paperclip jump up and says, it looks like you're starting to write a letter. I don't understand why he can't give that technology to Twitter so that when people are ready to hit send, you can't have a little happy, you know, anthropomorphic paperclip jump up and say, it looks like you're about to comment on an article without reading it. Would you like to read it first before you respond to this tweet? That's the kind of technology I want to see here. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. There, there was a time back in the 1990s where you could find a lot of um, evil CEO, evil tech genius type characters. I think I remember Judge Reinhold playing one in some, I think it was like a, inspired by Tom Clancy or something like that. Like Bill Gates as evil mastermind was kind of this really big pop culture phenomenon, uh, thinly veiled portraits of, of it. And then it kind of faded away and then he kind of became this happy philanthropist. I know he's been thinking about virology and, he's, uh, and various, you know, various forms of diseases. I do believe, Greg, wasn't there some time he released a jar of mosquitoes at some big health conference to make some point. And everybody's like, uh-oh, this is how supervillains get started. Yeah, you probably could have just done a PowerPoint presentation on that, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> like, oh, like everyone's like, oh, this is even worse than the Gallagher performance. <laughs> yeah, watermelon washes off. Zika and malaria, that's a little bit harder to get rid of. But uh, in any event... Uh, in case anyone's right, as far as we know, those, virus, those mosquitoes did not have any terrible viruses in them. <laughs> I got some breaking news here that New York and other East Coast states are extending their shutdown of non-essential businesses to May 15th. Ralph, yeah. Northam, Ralph Northam just looks at them and smiles and goes, uh, yeah, welcome to June. When we Let get me to know June. when you catch up there, fellas. <laughs> I got everybody in my state wearing masks, just like I used to. Wow. Okay. On to our bad martini <laughs> now, Jim. And... Uh, Gosh, unfortunately, the, the laughs are going to probably stop here pretty quick. We got more weekly job numbers, and they are definitely not good. Labor Department reported that the number of Americans applying for state unemployment benefits totaled 5.245 million last week. So basically five and a quarter million combined with the prior three jobless claims reports. In the past four weeks, we've lost now over 22 million jobs, and that's just 400,000 less than all the jobs we've added since the Great Recession, uh, since November 2009. Uh, if that weren't depressing enough, we also found out in the past few hours that the Paycheck Protection Program loans are all gone already. The Small Business Rescue Fund set up by Congress in the relief bill has already exhausted its $350 billion funding capacity. 
And I don't know about you, Jim, it seems like there's not a ton of urgency, certainly on the part of Nancy Pelosi, to get back to town and deal with that, or at least uh, devote more money to that. The Senate tried to do that uh, end of last week, and the Democrats objected to it. And I know that if there's going to be another relief bill, Nancy Pelosi wants a whole bunch of other stuff completely unrelated to this again. And so we got a huge jobless problem. We got a huge problem for small businesses. And it looks like Congress is dragging its feet. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you lead with the, the breaking news about the East Coast states uh, announcing the, the continuing shutdown of non-essential businesses, because why we are, have these terrible economic numbers is not... You know, it's not that uh, anybody's made bad loans. It's not that uh, the Coca-Cola company decided to create new Coke and people don't like their product. All of these businesses were functioning just fine. They were satisfying their customers. They had a customer base. Everyone liked, you know, or, you know things. You know, we, right, heading, uh, the irony is heading into this, we had, by a whole bunch of measures, some of the lowest unemployment and some of the best economic conditions in a really long time in this country. And then we all shut it down. And we all shut it down because we didn't want to kill people, right? People took a hit, in some cases voluntarily and sometimes kind of with, you know, with uh, the threat of a state shutdown. But people basically recognized, oh, okay, if my business is open, if my workers are on the assembly line, they could be affecting each other. Um, they kept people working at, uh, you know, essential businesses. And we are seeing from Smithfield plants and from Amazon warehouses and from places like that, that supermarkets in the D.C. area that if you're working right now, you can catch coronavirus, right? So it's understandable that people are like, okay, okay, we don't want to do this. Having said that, you can't run the economy on government checks for that long. You could do it for a little while as an emergency measure. That's, that's how much you could do um, because you, you, that basically this is okay as an emergency measure. We are now four weeks, five weeks. I know, I know we've all lost the ability to measure time uh, during this crisis, <laughs> but really, you know, um, I think a lot of Americans were willing to do this for a while. We are now starting to hit that breaking point. I kind of think that either in two weeks or the, by either by the beginning of May or by mid-May, people are just going to start ignoring this sort of thing. And, you know, I don't, there just aren't enough cops to shut down every business. There just aren't. So what, what we need to have, and I think uh, Avik Roy and uh, it was Lindsay Chang, there, there was a bunch of very bright people who rolled out a plan. And they said they're going to keep updating this proposal as it goes. It is not a fun one, I would emphasize to Americans. First of all, it says everybody's got to wear masks. It says that people are at higher risk for this, including the elderly, including people who have high blood pressure, uh, people who have diabetes, people who have any kind of, one of those, uh, cancer, people are recovering cancer treatments, people are supposed to get cancer treatments. All of them have to basically continue self-isolating or try to minimize their exposure to other people until we have a vaccine which is looking like a year to 18 months. That is a really dire proposal. But everybody who's young and healthy could get back to work. All the kids could get back to school, probably not this school year, but you know, heading into the fall. Um, it's gonna require something like that. And I think it's time for these governors, as much as they wanna protect people's lives, to start looking at, okay, what can we open? Because each day, you know, it's, again, it's not just, um, as I've said, we, we can't measure this on a month to month basis. Week by week, the numbers are devastating. And at this point, there's no relief coming other than these government checks. And many people reasonably say, just how much can $1,200 get you when you've got rent due, food due, if all of your forms of income have suddenly been taken away from you. And oh, by the way, there's all that job that you lost, you know, 
thousands of other people in your community have lost their jobs at the exact same time. It is a, a dire scenario. We are being put into a situation where we have to choose. We have between a, a certain level of likely deaths from reopening the economy versus economic ruin. And we're going to have to accept this. We're, we're going to have to accept that we're in this very difficult trade-off. I think, you know, reopening the economy on this gradual piece by piece, you know, measure by measure, business by business way is the right answer. But the only way we can go forward with it is everybody recognizes and is honest about the risks. And I'm not sure. I think I still feel like there's a lot of denial going on in these public discussions, Greg. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's really wrong to look at this as a binary choice, because if you tank the economy long term and and millions, we've already got tens of millions out of work. And if it gets much deeper than that, you're going to have a lot of health problems with a lot of people who might not even have coverage anymore. And that's a problem. And just, you know, the psychological effects, depression, all that kind of things. There are health consequences from a uh, depressed economy. And uh, at the same time, you need healthy people to have a, a, a strong economy. And so there's a tension there. But to say it's got to be one or the other just isn't right. Yeah. And I don't want this to sound like I'm endorsing Dr. Tedros. But let me just observe. <laughs> <laughs> that liquor cabinet starts looking really good the longer time you're staying, in, you're staying indoors. Um, I mean, think about it. In the name of public health, some localities are saying not only are we shutting down so many of the businesses other than the absolute necessary ones. Some localities have asked people to minimize their visits to the grocery store. They're also not allowing people to go outside and exercise. Gee, what health consequences could that have? At some point, you, you have to recognize that this, this particular set of circumstances, which we all more or less bought into as a temporary emergency measure, cannot go on for more than, like I said, we're at five weeks, we're looking at six weeks, and if these extensions are true, Eight weeks. I'm sorry. You cannot ask, you know, 96% of American America's most most productive counties to shut the, some, themselves down for two weeks and not expect to have catastrophic consequences psychologically, physically, mentally, economically, and eventually probably politically. This is this is. Yeah, you know, we saw that big protest in Michigan yesterday. I don't really, I didn't love that, but when the governor is instituting kooky rules like you can't buy garden seeds and you know this is okay but that's not okay it's you shouldn't be the least bit surprised by this and it is deeply deeply frustrating um by these things i think it's time for everybody in in government to start being much more honest about the trade-offs and just just level with people and ideally everyone will recognize None of this debate is being driven by people who don't care about public health and just want to make their money. And I think it's safe to say who everybody who wants to keep these quarantine and these, you know, limit social distancing and all these other measures in place. I think the majority of these people don't, they don't, it's not that they don't care about the economy. It's just that they think the economic hardship is easier to do than the health hardship. And I think day by day, the difference between the two gets smaller and smaller. Jim, you perfectly set up our crazy martini now, and it's governors who are taking drastic measures and would appear without thinking very much about them. You refer to Gretchen Whitmer. We'll get to her in just a second, but we're going to lead off with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. He actually was on the Tucker Carlson program, which is kind of a surprise in and of itself. But uh, Tucker Carlson here in this clip reminds uh, Governor Murphy that he had 15 people arrested at a Jewish synagogue in New Jersey. Um, hey, doesn't that kind of conflict with the Constitution? Here's how it went. So um, you made that decision, and as I noted before, 15 congregants at a synagogue in New Jersey were arrested and charged for being in a synagogue together. Now, the Bill of Rights, as you well know, protects Americans' right enshrines their right 
to practice their religion as they see fit, and to congregate together to assemble peacefully. By what authority did you nullify the Bill of Rights in issuing this order? How do you have the power yeah, to we do were, that? That's above my pay grade, Tucker. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't thinking of the Bill of Rights when we did this. We went to all, first of all, we looked at the data well, and tell. the science, and it says pe people have to stay away from each other. Uh, that's the best thing we could do to break the back of the curb of this virus. So there you go, Jim. The governor wasn't even thinking about the Bill of Rights, uh, which is interesting considering that his uh, oath uh, right off the bat says, do solemnly promise and swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of New Jersey. So uh, kind of curious that that escaped his mind there. Now back to uh, Governor Whitmer. You mentioned the protests. Uh, a lot of folks uh, very upset with her additional restrictions, which means not even going to another person's home or even another one of your homes if you happen to own more than one. So if Bernie Sanders lived in Michigan, he'd be in real tough straits right now. Uh, and you can't buy seeds to plant. You can't buy anything from a plant nursery. Uh, no landscaping. Even if it's just one guy with a lawnmower can't come to your house right now in Michigan. And so Gretchen Whitmer says, that's okay. It's okay we did all those restrictions because, you know, the weather. So we just had snow. I've got snow on the ground here in Michigan right now in Lansing. We're expecting, you know, up to 30 inches in the Upper Peninsula. The fact that we're cracking down on people traveling between homes or planting or um, landscaping or golfing really for a couple more weeks isn't going to meaningfully impact people's ability to do it because the snow will do that in and of itself. So, Jim, there you go. Apparently, when it snows, the Constitution is suspended. I didn't know that. You know, I'm going to take this in reverse order, Greg. The first thing is, is that if you live in the D.C. area, you run into a lot of transplants. And some of the transplants you run into are going to be from Michigan. I also might find them from, you know, upstate New York or New England or something. And if you grew up, in fact, I, in fact I'm talking to someone from Michigan, aren't I, Greg? Yes, you are. Okay. So what do you consider to be real snow? <laughs> Real snow. Well, I'm from the Upper Peninsula, and so you need a lot of snow, at least when I was growing up, to cancel school. I would say anything north of eight inches is uh, going to be something that you need to deal with. Anything north of a foot, and back in the day, you could probably hope to at least get a two-hour delay. I was going to say, many of the Michiganders I encounter will make comments like, ha, back in my day, we kept school open if it was less than three feet, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, 18 inches, that's a dusting, you know, all that kind of stuff. So now all of a sudden, you know, by the way, she's doing this live with apparently a window. Maybe it's a still picture. I don't know. But, but the, the capital behind her didn't look like it was snowing. And my understanding is, is that, you know, uh, anything less than six inches, um, Michiganders considered to be somebody brushing dandruff off the shoulder. It's, it's really nothing that. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't buy that. Uh, as I mentioned in the last martini, look, people will follow rules if they understand them, if they understand why the rules are in place, and if the rules make sense. And there are all kinds of crazy arbitrary distinctions in the Michigan rules um, that at minimum, and by the way, people who had been giving Whitmer high marks for her early responses turned on her in this one. This is not a bunch of crazy right wingers who are arguing about this. Um, ordinary people are like, wait a minute, none of this makes sense. Why are you, you know, uh, putting police tape over uh, particular aisles in Walmart? This doesn't make, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Um, the second thing that kind of jumps out about this, Greg, I'm very curious about what it is about Democratic office holders named Phil who are willing to openly express contempt for the Constitution. Because back in 2009, during the consideration of Obamacare, someone made the argument that certain provisions in the Obamacare bill proposal would be unconstitutional. Back when people were doing uh, town hall meetings and Phil Hare, 
Democratic congressman from uh, Illinois, said, who cares about the Constitution? And, you know, I'm trying to take care of people here, blah, blah, blah. I was among the folks who spotlighted that. Bobby Schilling, you may have noticed, Jim, has, you know, in addition to not liking Democrats named Phil, Jim tends to like Republicans named Bobby. Um, that Bobby Schilling was running against him. And I said, keep an eye on this. This is the sort of thing that can turn a race right up there with Bob Etheridge strangling somebody. And uh, this is the sort of thing that, you know, you know that takes these re- relatively obscure House members and gets a whole bunch of people to donate to the challenger and makes people really want to beat the challenger because they've created this viral, no pun intended, moment where everybody sees this, this attitude. And Phil Hare really seemed to believe it was ridiculous that anybody was bringing up the Constitution in the context of what the Obamacare bill should be. Now, Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, is, you know, he's got this tough situation. He's got a, you know, a outbreak and an outbreak that is hitting his state particularly hard. And I want to give Phil Murphy a couple molecules of credit for going on to Tucker Carlson's show and facing those questions. There are a lot of Democratic governors who simply would never have done that. That having been said, I, at, at minimum, you need a better answer to that question than to say, oh, I'm not, I wasn't thinking about the Constitution at that time. You have to have the answer that is, I believe that my uh, actions were consistent with the constitutional protections and consistent with my powers in enforcing a quarantine. Or you have to say, I feel confident in my position and people are free to file lawsuits about that. And if I am wrong, the judicial branch of government will correct me but I believe I am right and I will fight this in court. There are better answers you could have given to that, but this whole idea of never, never crossed my mind about whether there was a constitutional, you know, uh, infraction, you know, going on, you know, like that's, that's a terrible answer. And Phil Murphy is going to deserve every bit of criticism that he gets for it. The other day with the protest, you know, it was supposed to be a drive-in protest, but folks got out and got on the Capitol steps and uh, apparently most of them weren't wearing masks and they weren't always six feet apart. And so Whitmer was out there saying, you know, I think this just turned into a political rally. But more than that, you guys weren't being very responsible. And it's activity like that that's going to possibly make me have to uh, extend this even farther. So you actually were contrary to your own goals here. And Jim, that just reminded me so much of uh, Vice Principal Vernon in Breakfast Club. And uh, so you got the the protesters are kind of like Bender. And so they come to the Capitol and she's essentially, that's another one right now. I got you for the rest of your natural born life if you don't want your step. You want another one? I'm not sure who's exactly Judd Nelson or uh, Anthony Michael Hall. I also would point out, Greg, the wall just got 10 feet higher. You like that? You know, oh, you think, you think being suspended or, or being grounded isn't long enough? There's another month. How do you like that? I could do this all day. Yes. Um, again, you know, talk about a, a gesture that doesn't, you know, like, again, does the political world attract crazies? Yes. Are people under stress and going stir crazy? Yes. But I think most people who are objecting to those rules, they're not pro-coronavirus. They're not, you know, rooting for the pandemic or the epidemic. And I don't think most of these people are completely oblivious to the threat. Maybe they understate it. Maybe they don't, you know, maybe they, they, they don't have a full grasp on it, but I don't think these people are, you know, they, you know, I haven't seen, you know, these folks didn't necessarily seem Alex Jonesy, you know, this is all uh, paid actors on TV pretending to be sick and all that kind of stuff. I think these people see these kinds of measures, the government restricting things that have never been restricted before in our lives. And they're freaking out with good reason. And, you know, the, I, the more you, you as a government say, we're going to take away your, your rights. You need to emphasize why and how and when it ends and how it gets restored and all that stuff. And very little of that has come from any of our governors on this. This has let out the inner dictator of a lot of people. In addition, you know, we talked about the Karens 
we talk about all the people who are, you know, the homeowners association of people who are eager to rat out their neighbors and call up the cops. Like the average cop wants to deal with somebody who's, you know, this way. In fact, Greg, wasn't there some report of cops having to deal with complaints that were of a particularly uncriminal nature? Yes, you're right, Jim. Apparently, according to USA Today, a uh, small town police department in Maryland has reminded residents to wear pants while checking the mail. Yet another sign that many people working during stay-at-home orders are dressing casually if they're getting dressed at all. Because there have been reports that uh, Walmart and other places are seeing uh, pretty good sales of shirts and other tops, but not so much pants because you don't see people's pants on Zoom. So, uh, But if you do have to go out to get your mail, please do wear pants. I don't think that's asking too much. You know, Greg, um, we knew this virus was going to have a lot of casualties. I didn't expect pants to be one of them. And um, first of all, I mean, just imagine being some cop. Thankfully, crime rates are generally down. You're worried about whether you're going to have to break up some fight at a store because, you know, two people reached for the same toilet paper. Uh, You're probably wondering if there's an enforcement of frauds, uh, of, you know, fraudulent cures or scams or something like that. And then all of a sudden over the police radio, uh, yeah, Unit 22, we've got a report of somebody getting their mail without pants. How much do you want to deal with that? How much are you thinking? Uh, look, I think I had somebody speeding. I got, I'll, I'm going to take care of this other one. Who wants to deal with the citation of pulling somebody over or, or booking somebody or writing a ticket because they're wearing tacky pants? Okay, that's completely reasonable. You know, It's almost quite the, liter- the, the fashion police. Um, Greg, the other observation is if I could give, put a gif into this verbal conversation, I would use the one from Seth South Park of Randy... <laughs> Or Randy's dad saying, I'm sorry, I thought this was America. Land of the free and pantless. Jim, good thing we still have some things to laugh about here. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. And tomorrow is actually Friday. Yay. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Don't forget you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.